following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Exodus chapter 23, uh, starting in verse 20 through chapter 24, 11. And um, I will read. It's a little bit of a lengthy passage, but um, I think it's good to read God's word. So let's read. Um, Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I will blot them out. You shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do as they do. But you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. You shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water. And I will take sickness away from among you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land, and I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my terror before you and will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come. And I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. And I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites from before you. I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little I will drive them out from before you, until you have increased and possess the land. And I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the Euphrates. For I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you shall drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. Then God said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. So Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you 
in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hands on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. All right. Uh, it's actually kind of mixing together a couple of sections, but they actually fit together well uh, as, uh, as God uh, wraps up his instructions of the covenant. Okay, the covenant promises that uh, he explains to them. And uh, this, this whole passage, in fact, this whole section of Exodus has caused me all kinds of grief and pain and nightmares because uh, it, it brings into conflict three things I know are in the Bible that I have a hard time mixing together. Uh, the law, grace, and obedience, right? And I struggle with how you put those things together. Uh, certainly, in, in passages like this, the Ten Commandments and the Covenant, uh, we know that God has given to us, or at least in this instance to the Israelites, a clear moral code, a law that they were to, they were to follow and be obedient to. Um, and, and we know that uh, outside of those who know the Bible, that people in general, it says the Bible, the, the Bible says that God's put it on their heart. The people in every culture and every place have a sense of uh, moral duty. Right? And it's, it's quite similar. Most people really everywhere know that murder is wrong. And nobody really supports that, right? So there's this moral code. But we, uh, we know from Scripture that, and from experience, that we're not able to keep that code, right? So we know there's a need for grace, and grace is God's, God's favor towards us that's undeserved. In other words, God is nice to us, not because we have done such a good job keeping the commands or being what he asked us to be, but out of his kindness and mercy, he saved us. He sent Jesus to uh, be our Savior. Jesus died in our place and paid the, the penalty of sin so that we could have grace and forgiveness. And I'm, I love God's grace. And in my early Christian experience, I grew up in a church where um, they were really more about the law than they were about grace. And it was all about, uh, yeah, sure, Jesus saves you, but then it's up to you to be a good person. You better start keeping the commands because you don't want to mess it up. And uh, later in my Christian experience, I realized that's wrong, right? That's not how it works. I don't get, Jesus didn't save me so I can now become on my own strength, a good moral person. That's not how it works. So uh, my life has mostly been riding a pendulum, swings from one extreme to another, right? Uh, anybody been on that adventure? So, so I went from like this thing of like legalism to like extreme grace where I believe that, that, that you shouldn't, Christians shouldn't even use the word obedience. Right? But that's not a part of the Christian life. You, you know, you just, it's all about grace. And I remember uh, my former church, somebody came up to me and says, you just really don't believe in the law, do you? I was like, yes, that's right. I don't believe in the law. <laughs> Cut that part out of your Bible. I didn't say that. <laughs> I did not say that. Right. Um, but in more recent times, uh, <laughs> so I've actually read the whole Bible, and, and it, <laughs> coming into confrontation with these instructions in the Old and the New Testament, that we are to, we are to be obedient to something, right? I don't know what that means. What is that? How do we reconcile that? So, for example, in Romans 5:21 and 22, Paul writes, 
It sums it up really well. Now, the law came to increase the trespass, in other words, our guilt, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. That's the cool thing about God's grace. We cannot outdo his grace. No matter how much we sin, no matter how much we mess up, the more we sin, grace just simply expands, grows, increases to cover our sin. That's awesome. Um, but, but this thing of obedience keeps coming back in. And where, where is obedience? What does it have to do with the life of the believer? And Paul uh, was aware of this problem. In the very next verse, in chapter 6, verse 1, he writes, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace might abound? And he answers, may it never be. Absolutely not. Right? The, the life of the Christian must be a life of obedience. Uh, grace does not eliminate the need for obedience in our life. But that raises the question, obedience to what? And to what goal? What purpose? What, what are we obeying? Right? If, if, if we're not under the law... We're not trying to earn God's favor through being a good person. Then what's the point of obedience? Um, well, maybe you don't wrestle with that problem, and if you don't, then you can just take a nap right now, and you're good. But if you wrestle with that question, I hope to answer it as we look through the, the, the covenant, kind of the conclusion of the covenant, and uh, the, the signing or sealing of the covenant. And that's what this is about, conquest and covenant. Um, so, so let's unpack this a bit. The, the passage starts off, and it's really at the end of uh, several chapters, all the way from chapter 19 to chapter 23. Uh, God has been giving to Moses the covenant, right? The covenant. And the covenant is full of uh, obligations and expectations and duties that God expected of the people of Israel. But it's very important to notice uh, as we go really back and survey all the way back to kind of the beginning of the book of Exodus that they got to Mount Sinai absolutely as a work of God's grace. Uh, and we're not going to talk about that. We've looked at it a lot. But they were saved from slavery in Egypt by God's grace. Okay, before when they were enslaved in Egypt, they had no law. They were following no law. They were obedient to nothing because God hadn't given them specific instructions yet. And it, they had done nothing to deserve or merit or earn God's help. God just simply looked down and he saw their suffering and their oppression and he had compassion on them. And God chose and decided to save them. And so God did this amazing work of sending Moses, of sending the plagues, of leading the people out, of overcoming Pharaoh. And purely by God's grace, he saved them from their bondage and slavery in Egypt. And by God's grace, he brought them all the way out to Mount Sinai and he invited them there into covenant relationship. Okay, what's important to rem remember about this is that he had already saved them. So covenant is not about getting saved. God never says, if you obey these things, I'm, I'm going to save you. If you don't, I'm going to send you back and make you be slaves again in Egypt. He never says that, right? So what, what is covenant then? What does it mean? What's the significance of this covenant at Mount Sinai? Well, it's spelling out what a covenant relationship is. right? As human beings, we are all in relationship with somebody, right? That's with lots of somebody's actually, right? And relationships, as, as you probably have learned, can be very complicated things. Has anybody here ever made somebody angry? <laughs> okay. Uh, has anybody ever made you angry, right? It's complicated, right? 
It's come. It's so easy. Relationships are difficult. And, here, and, and God brings the people to Mount Sinai and he says, I want, I've saved you, but now, I've saved you by grace, but now I want to do life together with you. But I want to walk with you. And, and the images and pictures of all that happens from Exodus onward is this picture of God's presence dwelling in the midst of this people. God says, I don't want to just be your God from gazillions of light years away in heaven. I want to walk with you. I want to be in your, in your midst. I want to do life together with you. And I'm going to help you, and I'm going to be, I want to be with you. I want to be your God. I want you to be my people. Um, but to do that, uh, you, need, you need guidelines for how this relationship is going to work, especially given it's this holy, infinite, invisible God. So the covenant is all about spelling out how they can do life together. Right? And any, any newlywed quickly discovers the importance of things like where you squeeze the toothpaste tube. Right? It matters. Right? I found out quickly it actually matters where you place your dirty socks. Who knew? Right? Okay, it doesn't seem like a big relationship issue, but actually it can be very big, very big deal. Right? These little things, these expectations. And, and what it comes down to is uh, how do you honor that other person by doing what's pleasing to them, or at the very least, avoiding what absolutely drives them crazy, right? What's annoying to them. Because um, even no matter how much Denise loves me, every once in a while she finds my behavior a little annoying. Hard to believe. So we have to, have, we have to talk about these things. We have to know that when I do certain things, you know, it drives her crazy. So uh, that's a covenant relationship, right? You're working out the agreement for how you're going to live together in a way that's positive and healthy and not driving each other crazy. And that's exactly what the covenant's about. It's God spelling out what they need to do and to be to be in relationship with him. And the thing is, it's one thing like if I drive Denise crazy, uh, there are consequences for sure. But that's nothing like the consequences of driving God crazy, right? You get on the wrong side of God, it's, it's a bad thing. It's a problem, right? So, so that's what's, what's, what's happened up to this point. And in this last section, up to now, it's been basically about the Israelite side of the agreement, okay? What they need to do to honor God, to do what will be pleasing to him, to uh, honor his wishes in his side of the relationship. But now things switch gears a bit. And in, in this section, God actually explains his side of the deal. So what he's going to do to fulfill their wishes, to honor them, to give them uh, what will be helpful for them, what he is going to do for his side of the relationship. And so he says in verse 20, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place I prepared for you. When my angel goes before you and brings you to the land of the Hittites and Amorites and Perizzites, all these people, uh, I will blot them out. I will send my terror before you and throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come, and I will make your enemies turn their backs on you to run, to flee. I will send hornets before you. Um, anybody like bees? Anybody like hornets? Uh, nobody likes to be chased by a pack of hornets. That's the image, that God's going to drive them out. They're going to be terrified and running in fear. Um, and he's going to expand their borders. So, God says, first thing I'm going to do is I am going to bring conquest to this land. I'm going to bring you into this land that I promised, and I'm going to conquer that land and give it to you. And basically, you're, you're not going to have to do a lot in this process. I'm going to do it all. 
Uh, I'm going to go before you and I'm going to drive them out. Second thing he says is I'm going to, once you get there, I am going to make you incredibly prosperous. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm liking the sound of this relationship, right? God's going to provide. He's going to protect. He's going to beat up my enemies. I love that. And uh, not only that, but he's going to bless the socks off of me. He says, you shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water. In other words, God's going to give abundance of food and, and, and clean water. I will take away sickness from among you. I'm going to give you incredibly good health. Uh, you shall not miscarry or be barren in your land. So you're going to have tons of children and offspring, and your cattle and sheep and flocks are going to multiply. You're going to be prosperous. And in the end, I will fulfill the number of your days. Okay, this sounds a lot like a prosperity gospel. And it is. Okay, It's prosperity gospel. Plain and simple. God says, I saved you because I want to bless the daylights out of you. I want to pour out on you all kinds of goodness. Um, just a word of caution. Uh, this promise is to Israel alone, right? So, uh, it, you know, you can apply this first to your life and you can tell God, you know, you promised good health and uh, lots of children and, and uh, long days and long years. Okay, God did not make this, Jesus did not make this promise to his church. Uh, instead, he has promised you trials and tribulations, suffering, hardship, Right? And you have to stand firm to the end. There is prosperity for us. But it, it comes ultimately uh, in the next life, not this one, when Jesus returns. Right? God is going to bless you. And um, in all the hardship, God's purpose for you is always good. Always good. Always loving. He always wants the best for you. But we're on a different path. Okay? God did not promise us a promised land. He promises Jesus always to go with us. Uh, so a little different promise. So we've got to be careful how we apply uh, these promises. But for Israel, it was going to be good. Uh, and, and really, this is just a few short weeks away. God is envisioning, you know, we're going to pack up from Mount Sinai. We're going to go across the desert. It's going to be a two-week two trip. And you get to Kadesh Barnea. And boom, we're going to go into the promised land. And I'm going to start destroying your enemy. So get ready, right? And you're going to have good life there, abundance, long life. But, but, there is a condition. Okay, God says, I'm going to do this for you. But in order for this to happen, there is a condition. And the condition is obedience. Okay, notice what he says in verse 20. Let me read it again. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way. And to bring you to the place that I have prepared. And by the way, the angel clearly in this context is God himself. Or perhaps a theophany, perhaps Jesus. Okay, it's not like Michael the archangel. God's just saying here that my presence will go with you. Um, but notice what he says then. He says, but, but you must pay careful attention to obey him and to obey his voice. Do not rebel against him for he will not pardon your transgression for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. Okay, so you so get the picture. God saved them by grace. He brought them out by his good, kind purposes, by his love and compassion. Now he wants to enter into a covenant relationship with them. 
where, where they've got to live up to some expectations, right? To make this relationship work, they need to do some things. And God, on his part, is going to bring conquest and victory. But in order for that to happen, they must be obedient. Now, we could look at this two ways. We could look at it this, that God is petty and small. Like he's like the little, the little second grader. Uh, maybe you had this experience, you know, when you were in second grade. Uh, your friend brought over the coolest toy ever, right? And you're so excited you get to play with your friend's toy. But they, they're like, if you don't play by my rules, I'm going to take my toy and go home, right? You ever had that experience? And you just want to break their toy, right? Um, just be that way, right? Is God like that? Is that what God is like? He's like, if you don't play by my rules, I'm just going to take my toys and go home. Is that what this is about? Well, no, of course, God is not like that. Uh, but here's the reality. And here's where obedience, this is what obedience is about. The bottom line is God is telling them that it's not that he won't help them if they do not listen. It is that he cannot help them if they do not listen. Um, It requires their cooperation for this plan to work. Uh, So, and we'll talk more about that in just a second. But first I want to look at at the command. He says, obey all my commands, and there was a lot of them. But at the, at the center of all of them is this one command that gets repeated over and over and over again. And he says it, in fact, again in this passage. The one great command is this, uh, to worship and to trust in God alone. He says, you must have only one God. You must trust in me uh, absolutely, complicitly in everything. You may not worship or trust or follow or listen to any other God. It's not Yahweh and Baal, Yahweh and Ashtoreth, Yahweh and whoever. It's God alone. Um, And and he's very clear that he's going to wipe out the Canaanites. And he says, you shall not bow down to their gods or serve them. Uh, Instead, you shall destroy them and their gods. the point in all this is that God alone can help them. The only way they're going to see uh, this blessing come is if God does it. It's not something they can do on their own. They don't have the power or capacity to beat these enemies. God alone can, can uh, provide for them. And he says, I'm sending my angel before you, um, my presence to go with you, uh, and I'm going to do this, but... But here's the deal. It is a joint venture. It is a joint project. Um, and in verse 21, he says something that should be a little disturbing. Okay, if you, read, if you heard when I read this, this should have bothered you a little. It bothers me a lot. Verse 21, it says, Pay careful attention to this angel. Obey his voice. Do not rebel against him. For he will not pardon your transgression. Does that bother anybody? It bothers me, right? Because throughout the... Throughout Old and New Testament, God has always been a forgiving God. Um, everything in this passage just kind of goes against. In fact, later, uh, he talks about burnt offerings. He talks about sprinkling the blood. He talks about atonement. He sets up whole sacrificial systems to bring pardon and forgiveness. But right here he says, look, you better listen to this angel. You better follow the voice of my presence because if you don't, I'm not going to forgive your transgressions. I'm not going to forgive your rebellion." What is with that, right? What, what is the deal with that? Uh, is God not a forgiving God? Why does he say, I'm not going to forgive you? Well, uh, I think you've got to look at the context here. What is the context? 
He's not talking here that he's not going to ever forgive their sins. He's not talking about, you know, if you break the covenant at certain points and, and you repent, I'm not going to forgive. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is this. I'm sending an angel with the purpose of guiding and leading you into the promised land who's going to help fulfill my plan and my purpose for you, accomplish my goal for you. And here's the deal. If you don't follow him, there's no forgiveness, right? Because the goal is the promised land. If you decide, I'm not following him, I'm going back to Egypt, pardon isn't going to help you any, right? Forgiveness is not going to fix the fact that you're back in Egypt and you're not where God wants you to be, right? You're going to miss out on the blessing, and there's no pardon for that. Right? I'm sure God can forgive your stubbornness and rebellion, but that doesn't bring back the blessing that you will miss because you refuse to follow him. That's what he's talking about. Uh, they will have failed to reach what God intended for them. They'll fall short of the blessing. And in fact, this is exactly what happens to this generation, right? They got as far as Kadesh Barnea, they sent spies in. The spies surveyed the land. They came back. They said, well, those guys are big dudes. And I don't think, I don't, know how, I don't know how this is going to happen. And they were struck with fear. And they said, no, we will not follow the angel into the land. And what happened? That entire generation was cut off from the promise. Right? Now, did it mean they lost their salvation? No, God didn't make them slaves again in Egypt. He still cared for them. He still walked in their presence. He still had a covenant relationship with them. But they did not reach the blessing that God had for them. They missed out. There was no forgiveness in the sense that they could make up the blessing that they lost. <clears throat> right, so the point is this. If you want to come into the fullness of what God has for you, and I'm not talking about just getting saved, but, but from salvation forward, to walk into the fullness of God's plan and purpose for your life, to experience his blessing, his abundance, his goodness, right? all that God wants to do in your life, the only way you can make that happen in your life is if you participate with God through obedience and follow him where he's leading you. Uh, and praise God, we have that angel in us. It's Pentecost Sunday. We celebrate the birth of the church and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. If you're in Christ, the Holy Spirit dwells in you and his purpose is to lead you. And he knows how to do it. And you may say, well, I don't ever, like, you know, why can't he send emails? <laughs> so much easier. Why can't he send me like a Google map with a pin on it, right? Uh, it doesn't work that way, but he's leading you nonetheless. In, in ways subtle, ways that you may not ever be aware of. He's leading you. Uh, but what's required on our part is that we follow, right? That we submit and surrender to the leading of the Holy Spirit, that we walk in obedience to what he asks of us. Uh, so just another way to look at this. What's the difference between the obedience that is merit-focused or obedience is trying to in gain God's favor versus this kind of obedience, which is simply cooperating with God. And so that's where we get confused with legalism. Legalism is trying to keep the law and be obedient in order to earn God's favor so that God will somehow love us more or, or give us what we want. Um, so what is, what is that? Well, it's like this. Suppose that you have a friend who has a huge debt. 
They owe hundreds of thousands of dollars, way beyond what they can pay. And you happen to be very wealthy, and so but you care about your friend. And so you come along and you pay off their debt. Okay, you say, I'm going to help you. And you give them money and you pay off their debt. Now, from that point on, your friend is somewhat obligated to you, right? Like they don't just say, well, that was really nice. Uh, I'm going to just go live my own life. There's a sense in which they're indebted to you. It's like if you get in trouble and say, you know, you get... You, know, you have kidney failure, and that person happens to be a good match for a kidney. They kind of owe it to you to give you your kidney. You know, give me your kidney, right? Um, there's a sense in which they, 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 you've earned the right for their help because you helped them. Okay, that's doing something for merit. And the reality is that we can never do that for God because there's nothing we could do that would ever indebt him to us. God doesn't need our help. He's not going to ever need your kidney. He's not going to ever need your money. God's never going to be in debt that you're going to bail him out. So it's impossible for us to ever indebt God to us, not to mention the fact we're just not that good. But there's another kind of obedience that's cooperation. And this is the picture of it. Imagine uh, that you have a child who shows great potential as an athlete. I have a friend, some of you know, Stefan and Tina, lived here for a number of years, and they discovered that their son, Tobias, actually uh, was very gifted at badminton. When he was in grade school, he loved to play badminton, and, and he, he had a real knack for this, and some people encouraged him, you know, you ought to kind of pursue, because he could be quite good. So they, they did that. They, they, they went, they found better coaches, and eventually found like a national level coach, and they got him in a good club with this coach, and they bought him the right kind of equipment, and they set up this plan for him, and they committed to driving him every day to practice, and they kind of rearranged their whole life so that he could learn to be a badminton player. Um, and they asked him, do you want to do this? He says, yeah, I want to do this. I like badminton. I want to do this, right? And here's the thing. Uh, giving him everything he needed to succeed is not enough. At some level, Tobias had to do what? He had to follow the plan. He has to do what the coach says. He has to do what his parents said. He has to follow the schedule. He has to practice. Uh, Maybe even when he doesn't feel like it, he has to obey. He's not obeying in order so that his parents will help him or so his coach will help him. No. He's obeying in cooperation with them to reach a goal. And you see, that's exactly what obedience should be for us. God has a goal. He wants to do great things in your life, in your heart. He wants to use you to accomplish huge things for him. And he has, he's removed every roadblock. He's cleared the way. He's provided everything you need to be successful. But you still have to follow him. Right? You still have to obey him. You still have to engage in the process and participate with him. And that's what obedience is. Right? God calls you to things. He's leading you. He's asking you for things. He wants absolutely to be a presence in your life, but to accomplish the goal he has for you, you've got to follow. Right? You have to submit to him. You have to trust that he wants the best for you and that he's able to pull it off and that the only way you're going to ever be really successful and happy in life is to follow him. Um, Certainly in my own life, I've experienced that so many times. Um, I remember when God called us to come to Thailand. I thought it was just the most stupid idea ever. <laughs> I did not want to come to Thailand. 
I, I did not, but I knew God was leading. I, it was clear. That's, that was his will. Right? And, and I obeyed. I followed that. And, and the crazy thing is, uh, he has done so many things in my life because I surrendered to that. That I'm, I'm really uh, not sure that, that those things would have happened. I would have learned those things. I would have grown in the way I had, have had I said, no, I'm not going to follow you. And I'm not going to submit to that. Uh, I'm not going there. Right? So that's what obedience is. Uh, it doesn't replace grace. But it's, it's an essential outflow of God's grace in our life. Uh, one other point on this, this, this passage before we jump to the next. Uh, verse 32, he says, You shall make no covenant with them. That is, the people that, the Canaanites, the people, the enemy that I'm going to kick out. You shall make no covenant with them or with their gods. They shall not dwell in your land lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. Sadly, they, they, were not, they did not follow this. They did not kick out the Canaanites. They did not kill them. And in the end, they worshiped their gods. And it was a terrible trap for Israel. Um, and the danger is that the world has huge influence in our life. Just a warning. You know, we, we, can't, we can't go around killing all our neighbors. Okay? We can't destroy the worldly influences around us. But we need to be aware that they are traps that will rob us of the opportunity to follow God in obedience. Right? These voices are screaming into us, telling us, don't trust God. God does not know what's going to make you happy. Right? God's just giving you these commands because he wants to wreck your life. Right? The world knows, surely the world knows better. We know what real happiness is. You need to follow the world's way. It's better. And sadly, so many people listen to those voices and follow them. And we need to learn to turn the volume down on those voices and turn up the volume on God's voice, his word, his teaching, his instruction. Okay, enough said on that. Next section is really uh, signing on the dotted line, right? So Moses comes down off the mountain and he explains to them the Ten Commandments and, and everything that follows afterwards. So Moses apparently had a really good memory because he, uh, or God was helping him. He, he repeats everything that he just heard. And he tells them, this is what God is asking for, from you. And it says in verse 3, And the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. In other words, we like this, we like this agreement. You know, we kind of do some stuff and God's going to, Destroy our enemies, and uh, this sounds great, right? We are all over this. Um, we will obey. Um, uh, we readily accept what, uh, what's gone here. So, so then what they need to do is they need to seal the deal. They need to seal the agreement somehow. Now, in our world, in our time, in our day, how do we seal an agreement? Well, normally you, you write down the document and uh, with all the terms of the agreement at the bottom – you, you sign your name to it. And by doing that, you are agreeing to all the terms and conditions. And, of course, now we live in a digital age where, you're, digital age where you're, even your signature is not good enough. So now, you know, you got that before you can actually play the computer game, right? You have to click the little box that says, I, I have read and agree to all the terms and conditions, right? And so all you have to do is just click the box. And, of course, we all read that diligently, right? <laughs> have you actually tried to read that stuff? It's like I read it. I have, it's like not, it's like a different language. 
Why don't you just say, you don't understand it, but just agree anyway? Because that's kind of what it is. Uh, so uh, that's how we do it. And then it gets recorded, it gets kept, it gets stored somewhere, uh, either in a paper file cabinet or in electronically, so that both sides know what they've agreed to. Well, back in Moses' day, there was no paper. There was certainly no Google Drive. There was no little tick boxes on your computer. How did they sign the deal? Well, it was quite elaborate. And uh, there's a five-part process that they do. And we're not going to spend a lot of time on this, but just real quickly, this is what happens. First, Moses explained it and then wrote it down and read it to them, and they gave verbal assent, right? It says, Moses wrote down all the words. They took the book of the covenants after he wrote it, and he read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, yep, the Lord, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. We will be obedient. So they agree verbally. Secondly, it says that Moses set up 12 stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel. So we got 12 big, huge rocks and stood them up. So there's this visible memory of the 12 tribes as their side of the agreement. Then he built an altar. And he got all the young guys around. He says, I want you to kill a bunch of animals. We're going to offer sacrifices, burnt offerings, and fellowship offerings. And so, and, and they collected all the blood. And these amazing pictures of pouring the blood against the altar, which was God's side of the agreement. And then Moses, after he read it, it says he took and he sprinkled the blood, threw the blood on the people. Okay, so that was probably a little unexpected. Like if you're in the crowd, all of a sudden this crazy guy's throwing blood at you, right? Um, but in those days, they, they understood this because that was part of how a covenant was sealed. Uh, it's what you did. You killed stuff and you poured out its blood and you applied the blood to both parties. It's a blood covenant. And then lastly, uh, God invites Moses and uh, Aaron and his sons and 70 elders to come up and eat a covenant meal with him. So they go up on the mountain and it says that... Uh, uh, they, saw, they saw the God of Israel, and there was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone like the very heaven for clearness. Uh, and they lived. Right? It says that if you see God, you will die, but God's, God granted them life. We don't know what they actually saw. It's interesting that they said they saw God, but all they could describe was the pavement. <laughs> so we don't know how much they actually saw. What, but somehow they knew they were in God's presence, and they had this meal together. Uh, so all these elements, these five steps, serve two functions. First, they are a means by which they r ratify the agreement. Right? So the sprinkling of blood, this killing of stuff, these sacrifices, the, the meal together, all are ticking the box or signing your name. It's, it's committing and agreeing to the promises that God made and you made, both sides coming to and confirming the agreement together. But secondly... All of this stuff would serve as a dramatic reminder of what had been promised. Right? They couldn't just file it away in a file cabinet, although they did have the Book of the Covenant. But, but for them, the symbolism of the activity is what they would remember. And so, you know how it is with blood. And back in those days, they didn't have bleach and Clorox. And the splattered blood would stay on your clothes. A week later, two weeks later, a month later, you still you look down and you remember, right, because of... Uh, the blood that's still on you. The 12 stones would stay standing. Um, as time would go on, they would have institute burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. And those things would be a reminder that they were in a covenant relationship with God. They had promised to obey him and God had promised to help them. 
So they seal the deal. And for us, I just want to close as we, we're going to go into communion now in just a minute. Um, and there's some amazing pictures in this sealing the deal that carry over into the Lord's Supper. Um, and the first is that, uh, that it is a blood covenant. Right? The old covenant was sealed, ratified, it was signed, it was made official by the shedding of blood and by sprinkling it on both parties. Uh, in Hebrews chapter 9, the writer of Hebrews writes this, Therefore not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. Uh, and of course, when Jesus instituted the, the Lord's Supper, he did it to remember uh, his body and his blood shed. But he, he also says this, Likewise, after they had eaten the cup, Luke chapter 22, after they had eaten the cup, Jesus, uh, uh, Jesus said, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Right, we enter a new covenant. We are not under the old covenant. We are in a new covenant. But it's one that's been sealed and ratified by the very blood of Jesus himself. Uh, the author of Hebrews says that, God, that Jesus took his blood into the temple in the heavenly places and he sprinkled the altar there. Uh, it also says that, that we, as Hebrews saying, that we have been sprinkled with the blood of the Lamb. Right? So... God's promise to save you by grace in the New Testament has been sealed by the blood of Jesus himself. As we celebrate the Lord's Supper, uh, we remember his blood that has guaranteed the covenant. Um, the other interesting uh, symbol here is this idea of a covenant meal. Back in those days, uh, you didn't eat with your enemy, right? Right? Eating and fellowship, a meal was something you did with somebody who was a friend and an ally. And so to, to really commemorate the making of this agreement, they would have a covenant meal together. And so that's the whole picture where God invites up the elders as representatives of the people. Uh, and in his very presence, they eat this meal, as it were, with God himself. Of course, God doesn't actually eat it, but he's there. He's, he's present. Um, in the same way the Lord's Supper is, it is a covenant meal we eat before God in his presence. And of course, we've looked at how, how communion, the Lord's Supper, reflects uh, what happened at Passover. And in Passover, it looks back at what Jesus has already done to save us. Right? So the elements look at Jesus' death backward as forgiving sin, of cleansing us, of giving us right relationship with him, of saving us by his grace. But clearly, uh, Jesus, by making this also a covenant meal, has something else in mind. What is the new covenant? What really is the new covenant? Well, it is certainly uh, what Jesus has done to save us by his grace. But remember, covenant is, is beyond just saving Right? It's spelling out the terms of relationship. So what is the terms of relationship in the new covenant? 
Is it, well, I'm saved by grace, and so I can do whatever I want and live my own life, and I can just blow off obedience. I can ignore the leading of the Holy Spirit. I can ignore what Jesus commanded us to do. Is Is that the new covenant? Of course not, right? The new covenant is a covenant where God wants to walk with us, right? He sent out his Holy Spirit to live in us. Uh, They have the presence among them. We have the presence of God living in us. He wants to walk in relationship with us. He wants to do life with you and I. But there are covenant conditions. And it's not about your salvation, but it's about walking into the future blessing of what God has for you. Experiencing the fullness of everything God wants in your life. And so here's the thing. We come to communion to remember Jesus, yes. To remember his blood, to remember his salvation, yes. But if it's a covenant meal, it's also agreeing that we are going to trust in Jesus alone, not just for the past, but for the future. That we are by taking uh, that bread and that cup, by sharing that meal in his presence, we are committing to a life of obedience, of following him, even when it's hard, of listening to his voice, of doing what we know the Holy Spirit is calling us to do. So when Paul says, beware lest you eat or drink in an unworthy manner, he's not saying that you drink because you have sin in your life. We all have that. That's what it's all about, right? Is the blood of Jesus covering and forgiving and cleansing. No, the danger is that you take communion with no intention of being obedient to Jesus. Right? It's a covenant meal. It's, It's a promise. Right? And so we come in and we take these communion, we, 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 we celebrate Jesus, we, we remember his death backward, but we also remember what it means forward. We have been sprinkled by his blood. Okay, and that is a picture of cleansing, but in this context it's also a picture of the blood of Jesus giving us a power to do what Israel could never do. Israel could never keep the covenant. Right? They just could not do it. They could not stop worshiping idols. They could not follow Jesus, follow God. They could not follow the angel. Right? But we have been given a new power because the blood of Jesus is so much better than the blood of lambs. And it breaks the power of sin over our life. So it's not just about forgiveness, but it's about a new capacity and a power to be obedient. Right? You and I have the ability to obey him that Israel did not have. So we're going we're gonna to partake in just a minute. I'm going to have the worship team come as I close in prayer. And I'd just like you to reflect on those things, those pictures. Both it's a Passover meal, but it's also a covenant meal. One in which our commitment to follow and obey Christ is declared and are taking the elements together. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, we thank you so much for so many ways that the images and... You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.